so each one of these could be a stand on its own, but there's three things that God really laid on my heart that, that we need to hit and cover today, and so they're not going to be like an in-depth study on any of them. As we're just going to walk right into it because three lessons from the Last Supper because that's where we get communion. We get communion from the Last Supper that Jesus had with each one of his disciples the night before he was crucified. We sang a little bit about that, and we're going to sing more about it here in just a moment. But the first lesson that, we're, that I want you to, to hit on today is that Jesus was, is, and always will be in complete control. Jesus was, is, and will be in complete control. Mark 14, 12. This is even before the Last Supper begins. And it says, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they were sacrificing the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples ahead and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Go ahead. Next slide. Follow him, and wherever he says to enter, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they began to prepare the Passover. Amazingly, but not surprisingly, everything was just as Jesus had said it would be. It is possible that Jesus knew this man who was walking with the jar, but it's very unlikely. And it, it stands out because in that time, men didn't walk with the jars of water. Men didn't go to the well to bring back the water. That was a woman's responsibility. So Jesus said, hey, there's going to be a man walking around with a big jar of water. I want you to follow him. The details throughout the story suggest Jesus' supernatural knowledge of what would happen. The two disciples did as they were instructed. They also would have prepared the Passover lamb that symbolized the Israelites' deliverance from slavery in Egypt to redemption into the promised land. Little did they know that an even greater Passover was unfolding as Jesus himself prepared to be our Passover lamb. The meal they were getting ready to eat together was a reminder of God saving his people from the Egyptians. And if you haven't grown up in church, maybe you don't know the story of this, but the Israelites, God's chosen people, were in slavery for 430 plus years. And through a series of miraculous events, God was setting them free from what had held them in slavery. And the final night that they were in Egypt, God said, I need each one of you to prepare a lamb, a spotless lamb, a pure lamb, a, a perfect lamb. Sacrifice that lamb. Eat it in this certain way. Have this certain meal as you're eating this. Say these certain things as you were eating this lamb. And as you do that, take the blood from that lamb and mark the top and the sides of your doorpost. For those who did that, the angel of death will pass over and skip your house. But for those who did not do that, the angel of death stopped by and took the life of the firstborn child, the firstborn son. And as they did this, what it was doing is it was foreshadowing what was going to happen to Jesus. It was foreshadowing Jesus giving his life for us as the payment for our sin. It was foreshadowing the sacrifice on the cross that Jesus was getting ready to say, or Jesus was getting ready to take. And in John 1, it says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was indeed the Passover Lamb. Jesus was the Lamb 
who saved your life, who saved my life. The cross did not catch Jesus off guard. I'm going to say that again. The cross did not catch Jesus off of guard. He fully knew what was happening. In fact, we read that first story in Mark because I want you to understand, Jesus not only knew what was happening, he didn't just know the details, he was orchestrating each one of those details of that night. And so many times we look at our lives and we see so much mess and so much chaos and so much hurt and so much pain and so much junk, and we're just like, God, where are you? And he's saying, I'm right here, and I am still in control. We look around, and as we were praying for our country, we see our country, it's not the same. Even when I was growing up, there's so much garbage going on, and yet God is still saying, I am still in control. And this isn't in my notes. I just felt like I need to say this part. Y'all know it's not Washington's problem. You know whose problem this is? Put your hand on your chest. It's mine. It's the church. It's because we have failed in part of the mission that God has called us to do. God has called us to go out and reach the lost. And I am so thankful for a country where we have freedom to do that. And I will celebrate that unashamedly. But if I do nothing with that freedom, what's the point of it? If I keep my mouth closed and I don't talk to my neighbors about Jesus, what is the point? We have soldiers who have given their lives for nothing. And we come here and we celebrate and we say we salute those who gave their lives, but yet we keep quiet. And we forget the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Because he is still in control. Say that with me. Say, God is in control. God is in control. I want you just to close your eyes for a moment and just picture something going on in your life. Maybe there's a struggle. Maybe there's a problem. And I just want you to speak to that problem and say, God is in control. And right now, begin to declare that over your situation, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's emotional, relational, financial, God is still in control. God is in control. And just like Jesus knew what was going to happen, just like Jesus was in control and directing the events of that night when he took that last supper with his disciples, even in the middle of chaos, even in the middle of absolute uncertainty, his disciples had to place their trust in him. And God is calling us to place our trust in his sovereignty, not ours. He's not calling us to place our, our, our trust in who's in the White House. He's not calling us to place our, 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 our trust in who our governor is or any political party or anything like that. In fact, did you know that all throughout history, the time that the church grew the most, the kingdom of God advanced the most, was when the church was being persecuted. In the middle of persecution, God was in control. In the middle of your struggle, God is in control. Control. Say that one more time. Say, God is in control. 
God was in control while the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. He was orchestrating all of this. God was in control when Jesus was dying on the cross. The moment God turned his back on his only son, God was still in control. And God is still in control today. This type of confidence in God's will should inspire us to trust him, even when the road of life may be difficult, painful, or even deadly. God is in control. I think some of you guys are starting to catch a theme. I have a friend, and, and recently he discovered he had cancer. And he went into one of the, the most uh, renowned surgeons in Nashville to have this cancer removed. And in the middle of the operation, the doctor messed up and nicked something that caused him to, to die on the operating table. Another doctor was, was by, heard the beeping, came in, was able to resuscitate him, bring him back to life. And my friend Jeff said that as he was going through the recovery process, he began to get full of anger and bitterness and hatred towards this, this first doctor. I think we can all kind of understand that. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's probably a natural reaction. Your accident cost me my life. And as he was finding another doctor, his doctor recommended him to, to have another scan, and this scan took place in the same hospital, in the same wing, across the hall from the first doctor. And Jeff said as he was walking through that hospital, he was having PTSD. He was like, man, I, I, God, I can't do this. This is so hard. All I can remember is that recovery, that road. And as he was walking, God said, but remember those people in the other hospital that you were able to witness to? Remember those other people that you gave, that, that gave their life to Christ because of your testimony? Remember all of these different things that had happened in that short window? And as he's sitting there in the waiting room, God tells him, I need you to stand up walk across the hall, and book an appointment with that first doctor. And Jeff said, what? You want me to do what, God? And God said, you heard me. Go stand up, walk across the hall, and book an appointment with the other doctor. So he did it. And as he sat down at the doctor's desk, the doctor just said, I'm so sorry. And he began to cry. This was a... a, a, a a, a world-renowned doctor in this type of cancer. He's never made that type of mistake before, but his little mistake cost this man his life. And Jeff began to say, hey, I just want you to know I forgive you. And it's not easy, but I want you to know that God challenged me. God told me to come over here and forgive you and to tell you that you don't have to carry that weight anymore. And the doctor began to weep, and he said, ever since that day, I've cried every day because I took your life. I haven't been able to get rid of this guilt and this depression. I'm not the same. I, I don't even trust myself in surgery anymore. And he, and he went on, and Jeff just said, hey, stop. And he began to pray for him. And the doctor said, why would you do this for me? And Jeff began to tell him about God's love and began to witness to him. And he took his hand. He got to pray with his doctor and lead him into a relationship with Jesus. Even in the middle of death, God is still in control. Church, God is in control. 
Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You don't have to walk around with a heavy heart, with a burdened heart. God is in control. The second point that I want to talk to you about, the second thing that we need to do is go ahead and throw it up there. Say that word with me. One, two, three. Look at your neighbor. Say, he's talking to you. Look at your other neighbor. Say, I think he's talking to you. Look at your hand and say, oh, he's talking to me. Jesus broke protocol from, uh, from, from giving this Passover meal and began to wash his disciples' feet. John 13, 3 starts off, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that, God had come, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. This is in the middle of the Passover meal with his disciples. So Jesus got up from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. How many of you guys ever look at people's feet? Let's just be honest for a second. Feet are kind of nasty, right? There's a reason we have socks and shoes. There's a reason young people now think it's cool to wear socks with your sandals. Because we don't want to see your feet. And that's now when we bathe regularly. I hope we bathe regularly. Back then, they didn't have the opportunity to bathe regularly. They walked around in dirt and dust and... and, and uh, <sighs> Animal droppings. Their feet were really, really nasty. And this was the job of a servant, a household servant. The, 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 the first servant, like not, not the head servant, but the lowliest spot on the pole of being a servant was to wash feet. And in the middle of giving this Passover supper, the teacher, the rabbi to these guys, the man they looked up to, the man they were studying under, took off his robe, picked up a towel, dropped down to his knees, and began to serve them by washing their feet. That's crazy. Pastor talked about Holdebontain. Mark and Holdebontain, for those of you who don't know, left everything here in America, moved over to one of the uh, most congested countries. Because it's so congested, because it's so poor, you get off the airplane, you get in India, and parts of India just, they smell because there's so many, so many people. They left everything behind to go serve a people over in India. And as they did that, they begin to see God do miraculous things in their ministry. Pastor also mentioned Mother Teresa. We all know Mother Teresa. We've heard her name. When people talk about Mother Teresa, it's always with, with good, with positive things. But she didn't just serve to be a kind-hearted person. She served to show people the love of Jesus. One of our executive presbyters in the Assembly of God Pastor Saturino Gonzalez said, it is good at times for the church to leave the table and deal with the dirt that is out there in the world. If the church is to leave an imprint, it won't be in formality or titles. It will be in serving those around us. 
We need a church that is willing to leave the table and go out into the world. Firewheel, we are called to be the church that is leaving the table and going out into the world to serve. When it's talking about a church, it's not talking about a building. It's talking about a people. You and I are the church. You and I are the ones that are called to go out and to serve the world around us. Jesus said, even, Jesus said this even when his disciples were talking with him. Uh, they, were, they were arguing over about who was going to be the, the, the greatest in heaven. Jesus had just got done telling his disciples uh, about he's getting ready to die here soon, and his disciples, two of them, come up and said, hey, um, that's, that's a, hey, that's a good story. But when we get to heaven, um, can we sit uh, on your right and your left side? And Jesus said, guys, time out. You're missing this whole thing. That's not even for me to decide. That's for my Father. That's for God the Father to decide. In fact, I think we have that verse. Ricky, go ahead and throw that verse up there, please. Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and the men of high position exercise power over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Jesus wasn't mixing words. This wasn't an issue with interpretation or changing it from Greek and Hebrew and everything else to English. That word slave means you are to be the one that people tell to do the jobs that nobody else wants to do. You're to step up and do those jobs. You're to step up and to serve, regardless of if you ever get credit. Just as the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I remember about 10 years ago, we had a program here at, first at Firewheel called Adopt-A-Block. And every Sunday evening, all throughout the summer, we would go and we would knock on different homes, different doors. We did some homes in Garland, some homes in Saxe, some in uh, we, the one, one particular we did, Wiley Butane Trailer Park. Some of you were part of these groups. Some of you gave. Some of you prayed. Some of you went out and knocked on these doors. And there was one family in particular, a husband and wife, John and Betty Dinsmore. They grew up in church as little kids and then they walked away. John got involved in, in music and began to lead a life of partying, drugs, drinking. And, and he, he, you could tell he was only 60s, but he looked well over that because he had lived a really hard life. And the first time we came to the door, they just kind of politely but very firmly said, no, we're not interested, thank you. And as they saw our church coming back on a weekly basis, they began to open their door and began to talk to us. They saw our church going and mowing people's yards. They saw our church bringing out groceries. They saw our church, even in one of those trailers, we put in uh, new shelves in one of the kitchens. They saw our church serving their community, and it opened their heart, and I re I'll never forget this moment. At the end of the summer, we had a big celebration, like we're going to have after service. We all sat out back there in the back. Pastor Hanks preached, and at the end of his message, two hands went up to give their lives to Jesus, John and Betty, because first at Firewheel went out, and we served 
We didn't take the form of, hey, we have something you need. You need to come to us. We said, hey, we're going to come out and we're just going to show you God's love. Shortly after that, John passed away. But because of this church's service, this church taking the humble form of a servant, John's now in heaven. After that, his wife Betty moved to Florida to be with their kids. She still watches online. Betty, if you're watching online, we love you. We miss you. Pastor, I don't know about you, but I get messages from her on Facebook all the time. Hey, that was a great, she's an encourager. She talks about the church that she's going to down in Florida now, all because we didn't come in high and mighty and powerful. We came in as a form of a servant, humbled servant. Tommy Barnett, the founder of the Dream Center, has a saying. He calls it his life motto. He says, find a need and fill it, find a hurt and heal it. God is in control. We are called to serve. And finally, you are free and forgiven. You are free and forgiven. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, a verse that we read often when we take communion. It says, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions. He was pierced because of my transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was upon him. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Those big words, transgressions and iniquity. I'm just going to give you a really dumbed down layman's version. It means sin of, a sin that you commit by doing something or a sin that you, you don't do something you're supposed to do. A sin of omission or a sin of commission. But he laid down his life. The Lord God punished Jesus for my sin. For your sin. Sin is what separates us from God. The Bible tells us that God is perfect. There is no sin, no fault, no error in him. And because of that, if he were to come into if we were to come into his presence, that which is perfect wouldn't be perfect anymore. Or we would just die. We would cease because each one of us has sinned. Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I have sinned. Pastor Hanks has sinned. Each one of us has sinned. And that one sin, regardless of how big or how small it is, is what separates us from having a relationship with, with God. But God said, I love each one of you so much I love Carlos so much. I love Jeremiah so much. I love Deborah so much that I am going to do something about that. He was pierced because of my sin. He was crushed because of my iniquities, my sin. 
And God punished Jesus for Joshua's sin so that I don't have to be eternally separated from God, so that I can be in the presence of God, so that we can come in and we can worship God here at church. You can worship and, and be in the presence of God in your car, in your house, at work, at Starbucks, wherever you go, out there when we're gonna be going on this incredibly 40-foot huge water slide. You can be in the presence of God because Jesus became our sin. Paul tells us he became sin who knew no sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God, so that you and I could be in right standing with God. Sin is a very, very serious issue. And some people just grace over it and just say, oh, God's grace covers it all. Hey, God's grace does cover it. But it's because of the blood of Jesus. It's because the blood of Jesus has been applied to your sin, to my sin. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages or the payment for sin is death. But it doesn't stop there. Look at your neighbor and say, this is going to get real good. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Come on, if you're going to do it, let's give God a praise. Let's say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father God. Summer and the worship team are getting ready to come back up, and we're going to lead you guys in a new song. As they're coming up, I just want to read the lyrics to the first part of that song. If you got those lyrics, you can go ahead and put them on the screen as I read them. It says, I remember who I was. I was lost. I was blind. I was running out of time. Sin separated. The breach was far too wide. But from the far side of the chasm, you held me in your sight. So you made a way across the great divide. And there at the cross, you paid the debt I owed, broke my chains, you freed my soul. For the first time, I had hope. And then he goes, thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Because of the application of that blood, you and I can be in right standing with God. We can stand justified, just as if we never sinned before God. Now, that doesn't eliminate the consequence of your sin here on earth, okay? It does eliminate the eternal punishment of your sin. And there is a big difference. Big difference. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When it says, thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied, that's what it's talking about. The blood is now applied to your account. You are washed whiter than snow, just like you had never sinned. So as they sing that, I want you just to take this element, this, this communion cup. We're not going to take it quite yet. But I want you to take it and I want you to hold it in your hands. If you want to stand up, stand up. If you want to just sit there and think about the words that we're getting ready to sing. The words are going to be up there. If you want to sing with them, sing. If you just want to meditate on those and just say, Jesus, thank you. Jesus. Thank you.
I'm not good. I'm not. According to the world's standards, I might be. But according to your standards, I fail miserably, Jesus. But because of the sacrifice that you made on that cross, you don't see Josh the sinner anymore. When you look at me, you see Josh the righteous. You see the righteousness of God. Something that I could never be on my own. Something that I don't deserve. And I thank you for that, Jesus. Speak to us through this song. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.